0: Well, after uh, about a month away, I uh, invite you to turn once again to the book of Acts. Uh, We return to a study that we set aside for the month of April, uh, for the season of Lent, as we focused our hearts and our attention a bit uh, on the resurrection and God's work in raising Jesus from the dead. But this morning, we jump back into our study as we have been walking through this history of the church, Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along with the insert that's found in your bulletin. It's been a while since we've been here, so I want to just give us a simple, brief uh, refresher. Remember, at the start of this history of the early church, we saw the coming of the Holy Spirit in great power, an invisible sign. And it's that power that gave rise to these followers of Jesus, to this early church. And we wouldn't say that the church that the people of God was created in Acts. But we would say that it is in Acts that the people of God, post-Jesus, begin to understand and see who they are going to be, and and what they will be defined by in light of Jesus' coming. And one of the most significant developments, and we've looked at it already in the book of Acts, has been this revealing of a mystery that has been hidden for ages. A mystery that the church is not simply, that God's people are not simply to be an ethnic people. But that God is calling all nations, all ethnicities, and nationalities to Himself to form one people under one head, the Lord Jesus. And so, as we've walked through the early chapters of Acts, we've seen that the the spirits empowered preaching of the the apostles and the, and the signs and the wonders that He gave them to perform, and even through persecution. That through all these things, the church is growing. The chapters that have led up to chapter 12, where we find ourselves this morning, have particularly highlighted this truth. Remember, we kind of worked our way around a map of the ancient world as we looked at at Philip and the Ethiopian, as we looked at where Peter was going in the ancient world as God sent his servants out to proclaim the Gospel. Well, as we come to chapter 12 this morning, we come to what we might say is a uh, meanwhile back in Jerusalem. You know, all this stuff is happening all over the ancient world. And then meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, this is what's going on though exciting things are happening in the ancient world, things are not necessarily all well where it all started back in Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up again today. And so I want to read chapter 12. We're going to read it in its entirety. So listen uh, closely and bear with me as we walk through chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, "'Get up quickly!' And the chains fell off his hands." And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. And when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judah to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And all the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man! And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. What a great story we have before us this morning. I love this story. I love the way Luke tells this story. And I think it has some wonderful things uh, to teach us this morning. But I want to begin with the news. If you've been watching or reading the news lately, keeping up with current affairs in our world, then you've seen a little bit of what is going on in Eastern Europe. With Russia and the nation of you Ukraine. These are fairly recent developments on the world stage. It was not long after Russia, in this grand show of strength and glory, by spending millions, no, I think it was billions of dollars to put on the Olympic Games in Sochi then decides soon after that to to make that show of power more than just a show, but actually seize upon a much coveted region of Ukraine with the Ukrainians powerless, absolutely powerless to do anything about it. Of course, it's yet to be resolved and we'll see what comes of it, but I couldn't help but think about all that has been going on with, with these two countries when I came to this passage in Acts chapter 12. Because many of the themes that at least I think about when I look at the news, when I read the news, when I read the internet, are right here. I mean, this is a, this is a passage about glory. It's a passage about power. It's a passage about prayer. And it's a passage about the seemingly powerless The difference here is that history is not advancing like it normally does. Not like it does on the news. Not like it does behind Putin's command. No, this is different than what it seems. And so I want us to think as we walk through this story, as we kind of retell it and think about it, I want us to think about two truths that I think we can learn from this passage this morning. And the first one is this. God glorifies Himself through answered prayer. God glorifies Himself through answered prayer. For those of you who are here for the Discipleship Hour, we talked about prayer, and I love how it just coincidentally weaves into where we are this morning as we continue our study of the book of Acts. We begin this morning by simply acknowledging, as the hymn writer does, to God be the glory for the great things that He has done. The story is an amazing one. And it's one I think that, that is well told. Luke loves to add these little understatements, almost these little humorous moments to keep us engaged in the story throughout. Let's just back up. And start at the beginning. This young, vibrant church, once again, as it has faced before, is facing an enemy. Opposition. An enemy that threatens its very existence. Remember, it was not too long ago, just a few chapters ago in our Bibles, that Saul was ravaging the church, terrorizing Christians throughout the land. And what happened to him? God had dealt with Saul. Literally blinding him and changing him completely. But now, we have Herod. Herod, this Roman-approved ruler of this part of the world, of this region. Now, there are five Herods in the New Testament. So it can get a little bit confusing, like, which Herod are we talking about? This is not the Herod of Jesus' birth. The one who slaughtered boys. This is that Herod's grandson. That was Herod the Great. This is Herod Agrippa the First. This is a boy who was raised in Rome, and though he has the right blood, he really probably doesn't have any right to rule this land, and yet he had plenty of friends, church history tells us, plenty of friends who happened to be Roman emperors, And so he was a very full of himself, pompous man who was was reigning over this part of the world. And Herod, like his grandfather, is threatened by Jesus. His grandfather was threatened by the birth of Jesus. He's threatened by the death and the resurrection of Jesus and this new movement, this new following that Jesus has created. And so Luke tells us that Herod decides he's going to begin persecuting the church and it may have been it may have been best to see how the Jews responded to him arresting and killing one of Jesus's followers but he decides to arrest one of those that was closest to Jesus one of the sons of Zebedee James part of the inner circle, the brother of John. James has then the distinct honor, we learn right off the bat, of being the first apostle that is martyred for, their, for his faith. He's not the first Christian martyr, because we know Stephen was already killed, but James is the first apostle. And church history tells us that all the apostles, except for one, John, who lived out his days, and died of natural causes. All the rest, church history tells us, were martyred for their faith. And so here James becomes the first. In fact, church history also tells us that when James was martyred, it, here in verse uh, 2, it's very briefly stated by Luke, but church history tells us that, that when James was martyred by Herod Agrippa I, that his guard was so Moved by James's attitude towards his his impending death that his guard actually made a profession of faith and then was summarily executed with James, the prisoner that he was guarding. Just an example, as the church father Tertullian said, If you mow us down, we will multiply. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. So anyway, as we walk through this history with James dead to the approval of the Jews, Herod is setting his sights on possibly a bigger target. Well, that worked well. So why don't I go after another part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, one of the most vocal proclaimers of this new way. The only problem was that when he decided to arrest Peter, And execute Peter, it was in the middle of a holy week, the feast of Passover, the days of unleavened bread, the seven days, excuse me, that followed the meal that was the Passover. And so it was guaranteed to not go well if Herod does a public execution during this holy week. The Jews certainly are not going to like that. And so he's forced to wait. But he's taking no chances. He puts this prisoner under serious lock and key. Sixteen guards are assigned to him. This is maximum security. Peter is done. The church is no doubt disheartened. One of their most vocal leaders is in prison and likely as soon as the feast, the days of unleavened bread are over, he will die. You see, this is, this is Ukraine in the face of Russia. There's no hope. Or is there? You see, the young church, these followers of the way, they didn't have everything figured out. For instance, they didn't have this. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have all these, all these letters of the Apostle Paul. But they did know to pray. They did remember Jesus' words to plead and to cry out to Him. And, And really, that's the only thing they could do. They didn't have any lobbyists in Jerusalem to press their case for Peter's release. All they could do was pray. And little did they know how God would answer those prayers. Little did they know how God would choose to glorify Himself. Meanwhile, Peter is back in prison. And don't you love this? Peter is fast asleep. An angel appears in the jail cell, blinding light, but he has to hit Peter to wake up. It reminds me of Psalm 4, where the psalmist says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone alone. O Lord, make me dwell in safety. says something about Peter, I think. But anyway, Peter is awoken and so begins this, this wonderful sequence of events, this supernatural answer to prayer. His chains fall off. He walks past the guards. The iron gate opens like an automatic door at Target. And the angel is gone. And Peter is alone in the street. And Luke tells us at this point, Peter wakes up. You know that half-sleep, half-awake daze? Finally, he's on the street and he wakes up and he realized that the Lord has done the impossible. That God has glorified himself through answered prayer. It's an amazing story. And before we move on, I want us to just stop and I want us to think again about prayer. As Joseph helped us do in the discipleship hour, I want to pick up where we left off and think again about some lessons that we can learn about prayer, specifically from Peter's experience. And one of the commentators I read was particularly helpful in thinking through some of these things. First of all, think about when this answer to prayer came about for Peter. Peter. Verse 6 tells us, now when Herod was about to bring him out that very night. You see, I think we can safely assume that not only was the house of Mary full of praying Christians, but we can assume that Peter did a bit of praying himself. Even if he was content and at peace enough to eventually fall soundly asleep, I suspect that Peter prayed. That Peter didn't want to face the same fate that James faced. He wanted to be rescued. He wanted to continue the work that Jesus had called him to do. And yet the Lord waited. The Lord waited to act. He he required Peter to wait. He required the friends and family that were praying to wait. To wait and to trust to the absolute point of desperation and helplessness. I think it's interesting to notice that in this story. That God always hears the cries of His people. He always hears and answers their prayers. But sometimes the answer is to wait. To trust. To think long and hard about the fact that He is God. That though he has the power to do exactly what you are requesting, when you request it, his ways are not our ways. And he knows better than we do. Eventually the answer came. But it came at the very last minute. But that brings us to another thing I think we can learn from Peter's jailbreak answer to prayer that we see here in Acts chapter 12. Because maybe you're thinking, yeah, God glorifies himself through answered prayer, but what about James? Were God's people not praying for James? Was James not praying and pleading with the Lord for his life? That his life would be spared? Well, the text doesn't say, but I think we can safely assume that absolutely, they were praying. And yet, despite their pleads, to the contrary, God heard their prayers. He answered their prayers. And in His infinite wisdom, He allowed James to be cut down. It's a reminder for all of us about the nature of prayer. Why why did James die and Peter was rescued we don't know. We do know that in Mark chapter 10 Jesus specifically told James that the cup that Jesus would drink would become James's cup to drink that is the cup of suffering the cup of execution. We can also be confident that The Lord no less heard the prayers for James. He no less cared for James. But still, the answer that they got was not what they had hoped for in regards to James. You see, it's a reminder for us people of God that prayer, that prayer is significant, that prayer matters, but prayer is not magic. God uses them, but God is not some divine bellhop eager to get our quick order just the way we like it. No, God hears our prayers. And He will do His will. And He will do it in His timing. And you can rest assured that that is good. Because He is good. Well, getting back to the story, Peter shows up at the door of the house, a house that was likely prominent in Jerusalem, known for gatherings of Christians, and he knocks, and the servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door, and no doubt there is some fear in that house. They know what happened to James, they know what is about to happen with Peter, Rhoda's not just going to fling open the door and say, hey, no, she's going to speak through the door. Who is it? Who's there? And what Rhoda can hardly believe is that the voice that she hears is Peter. And then almost to, to build in us this, this tension and this experience of her joy and kind of how she lost her head in the whole situation. Luke tells us that she left him at the door and she ran back to tell the rest that Peter was at the door. What an account of answered prayer. What a reminder of the powerful tool in the hands of the seemingly powerless. God has glorified himself through answered prayer. But again, just like, just like we did with Peter's perspective, I want to think about prayer. Prayer. I want to think two lessons on prayer before we move on in relationship to these people that are praying. First of all, notice that these people were together praying. That this was the church assembled as one. And I think it's important to note this, to think about the value and about the importance of the church gathering together as one to cry out to God. Could God have answered their prayers Would they, if they were scattered all over Jerusalem and the surrounding regions praying out to God individually? Absolutely. But I think the church in this moment of urgency models something for us that is very important and something that we ought not lose. And that is that our lives are inseparably tied to one another as members of this body, as members of the church. And that gathering together to cry out, to plead our case before the Lord not only expresses that fact, but it strengthens that fact. And it changes us as a result and it brings honor to the Lord and that's why I want us to be a church that is committed to regular, faithful, corporate prayer pleading as one On behalf of one another. That's the first thing I want us to notice about these people. The second thing is something that we touched on uh, in the discipleship hour. And that is, notice that these prayers that the people made, they were not prayers of faith. God didn't hear them and answer them in a miraculous way because they mustered enough faith to believe that God could do what they were praying for Him to do. Now what happens? God answers them despite their faith. When Rhoda told them that Peter was at the door, they didn't reply, Wonderful! God has answered our prayers let him in, we can stop praying now. No. Even as they had been fervent and earnest in their prayers, they didn't believe that God had answered their prayers. These were prayers that were made in weakness, in frailty. With just enough faith to pray them but not really enough faith to believe that God could do the impossible. And yet God used them. Because the effectiveness of your prayers and the the glorifying of Himself in answering those prayers is not dependent upon the level of faith that you bring to the table. It's merely His grace and His kindness. How encouraging it is to me and I hope to you that God uses even our half-hearted prayers to glorify Himself. God glorifies Himself through answered prayer. But there's another truth that I want us to see, and we'll end here. It's the second truth that has to do with glory, and it's this. God will not share His glory. God will not share His glory. See, the main story, if we could call it that, the main story ends, but Luke adds here in chapter 12, right after this story, he adds here the death of Herod. This imposing figure that began this whole account. And I don't think this is a mistake. This isn't coincidence. Rather, it's, it's Luke highlighting the fact that as one commentator said so pointedly, if you oppose Jesus, you will lose. It's as simple as that. If you oppose Jesus, you will lose. Chapter 12 begins with Herod being this big, imposing presence but through the prayers of the powerless and for the glory of his name, what does the Lord do? He deals with Herod. He first takes Herod's prize prisoner, despite all of Herod's efforts to hold on to him. And then the Lord takes his life. The account of Herod's death is brief, but it is not insignificant. Luke gives us some of the historical backdrop. It takes place in this context of this political speech that that Herod is going to give. And Herod's goal in this speech is to be glorified. We know that, not just because Luke tells us that he didn't give God the glory when they shouted the voice of a God and not a man, but Josephus, in his uh, writing Antiquities, Josephus is an ancient historian which helps us a lot of what was going on in the first century. Josephus tells us, as he describes this event, he tells us that Herod, when he put on his royal robes, you've got to understand that his royal robes had been threaded with silver. With silver thread. And they had been threaded intentionally. Intentionally. And the time of day that Herod appeared was actually an intentional time of day to appear. So when Herod stepped out on that balcony, or stepped out on that stage, sat in that throne, the sun shone on him and his body literally glistened as he spoke. It gave this aura of glory. Now, this is not the first time that someone has been mistaken for God. Right? Peter was mistaken for God just a couple chapters ago in chapter 10. But every other time that someone is mistaken for God, what does that person do? No. It's not me. It's him. But not so Herod. Herod wanted it. He wanted to play God in killing Jesus' disciples. He wanted to be God and receive the glory and honor rather than give it to where it was due. But Luke reminds us here in this passage that there is only one. That there is one God who sets up kings and brings them down. There is one God whose gospel will march on despite every effort to shut it down. One God who deserves all the glory, honor, and praise. See, this is a story about unmatched glory. About a God who will glorify himself through answered prayers and through the gospel marching on and does not is not interested in sharing that glory with anyone else. Prayer for the helpless. Power for the powerless. The Gospel marching on. This is the story of the New Testament. And this is our story that we are part of. Praise be to God. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this message from Dr. Luke. This great story of Your redemption of your answer to prayer. But even bigger than that, for the fact that despite all efforts to the contrary, your will will be done. Your Gospel will go out to the ends of the earth. And Father, it's our joy to gather this morning as those who are gripped by that gospel, of those who are changed by that gospel, and those who want to be used by you to not just be changed ourselves further and further in Christ's likeness but to change the world and to change those around us. And so as we, this morning, are captivated by your glory, we pray that you would now glorify yourself in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.